to the floor, and she tells him to pick it up. But her eyes are fixed to James's jaw, and she thinks about how strange it is that one small thing, like a jaw, or a look, or a brush of a hand, can become so much larger than it actually is, so large that it closes itself around you and squeezes until it is hard to find air. It is November, and she can hear the wind moving over the walls of the house, stroking the windows, trying to coax its way past the curtains to blow the flowers from the napkins and plates, to muss the perfect leaves of the plastic plants that hang side by side above the sink. The house is filled with knickknacks, china angels, statues of saints, small glass animals with beady eyes, and each of them has to be dusted and the surface beneath polished with lemon oil, and then each has to be set back down precisely as it was before, the beady eyes staring in the same direction, the dust settling about it in the same design. The copper duck and goose jello molds have hung for so long above the stove that the paint behind them has kept its color, and when Ellen takes them down for polishing, a perfect bright shape of a duck or goose remains. A place for everything, everything in its place. The house is as rigid, as precise as a church, and there was nothing to disturb its ways until three months ago when Ellen and James and the children moved in because they had no place and nowhere else to go. James had been laid off just as the lilacs in the yard of their rented house bloomed, open-eyed and fragrant, trusting the Illinois winter had passed. The next day an ice storm trapped the world in crystal. The school where Ellen taught closed for the day, and she spent the morning playing cards with Amy and Herbert. Their school had closed as well. And mourning the lilacs and the budding trees, and most of all the colorful heads of the tulips which were frozen to the ground. James watched TV on the couch, bundled in a quilt, his body tucked close against itself as if he wanted to disappear. Talk to me, Ellen said, but he listened to her the way you'd listen to a faucet drip, not assigning any particular meaning to the sound. He refused to look for work. He read the paper in the morning and napped in the afternoon. She came home with the children one evening to find him pawing through a shoebox of old photographs. Most were of his older brother, Mitch, who had died in 1957, 15 years before. If we lived closer to home, James said, I could tend to Mitchie's grave. Pa doesn't care about things like that, and Mother isn't able to do it anymore. Ellen could see Amy and Herbert tasting the word grave with their tongues. She tried not to notice that James was still in his bathrobe. Bits of egg were caught on one sleeve. Dandruff lightened his eyebrows. This is our home, she began, but James shook his head as if he were clearing away a brief spell of dizziness, shaking free of an unpleasant thought. Yet he had been the one to choose the house just before Amy was born. A bungalow with two bedrooms, a porch, and a sunny modern kitchen. The first night after they moved in, a thunderstorm startled them out of their sleep, and it was James who raced through the rooms, closing windows, already protective of the woodwork, the carpet, the neatly painted walls that cradled the beginning of their lives together. Since then, they had brought two children into this house, penciling lines on the kitchen wall to mark each year of their growth. James had repapered the bathroom. 
Ellen had sewn curtains for the living room windows. The furniture was arranged to cover the marks on the carpet from the time Amy broke open a pen. The ivy hanging in the kitchen window had woven itself into the blinds. The house had become a diary of their lives, and Ellen could not imagine leaving it. But they couldn't live on her salary alone, and when the bulk of their savings was gone, it was the excuse that James was looking for. They would live with his parents, he said, to save money. They would get back on their feet. After all, where else could they go? And as each day passed and he did not look for work and the money dwindled and disappeared, Ellen could feel his excitement building until, at the end of the summer, they left Illinois, the rented house, the stunted lilacs. They moved back to Holly's Field, Wisconsin, the town where they had both grown up and their parents had grown up too. James's parents are not old. Fritz, just 60. Mary Margaret is 64. But the house is thick with the smell of old age, of pale gray skin and Bengay and many dry roasts and silent suppers. My whole life I worked hard, Fritz likes to say. Now all I want is some peace. Ellen watches him take yet another slice of bread. He sweeps it across his plate, and the bread picks up the juices and the colors and the shattered bits of food until he raises it, dripping, to his mouth. He chews ferociously, but without pleasure. Meals, like everything else in life, are just another task to complete. Everyone must wait quietly until his food is eaten and his plate wiped clean with bread. Children should be seen and not heard, he says, when Amy and Herbert complain. Then he leads after-dinner grace, even the children staring briefly at their hands, even James's restlessness steadied by the drone of his father's voice. Salt, Mary Margaret says, peering around the table. Ellen finds it behind the milk jug and passes it down, but Mary Margaret doesn't want it for herself. She sets it in front of James and smiles proud to have anticipated his needs. James is his mother's boy again. Under her care, he sleeps less, he has even managed to put on weight. In Illinois, he'd sit down to dinner, apologize, push his plate aside. Now his throat bulges as he swallows another chunk of meat, jaws grinding steadily. The first time Ellen sat at this table, she was 20 years old, bright-cheeked after a spring afternoon spent walking along the lakefront with James, planning their upcoming wedding. It was 1959, and she was eager to make a good impression, she didn't know then that Mary Margaret disliked her, that she was considered Jimmy's mistake. They had dinner, dry pot roast, canned peas, and, for dessert, blue frosted angel food cake, which Mary Margaret pinched into cubes and ate with her fingers like bread. Mary Margaret asked James, How long does she intend to go to school? Ain't high school good enough? And Ellen said, I'm going to be a primary school teacher, and for that I need a college degree. Mary Margaret asked James, Do her parents speak high or low German? And Ellen said, My mother speaks Luxembourg and German. Low German, Mary Margaret said, and her father too. He's dead, but I remember him coming into the church in a stocking cap. Then she and Fritz spoke in German about Ellen's father while Ellen chewed on a mouthful of that dry roast, trying to swallow it down. Thirteen years later, the roast has not changed, but now Mary Margaret won't tolerate guests, family or otherwise. 
Even Ellen's mother and sisters may not visit because of Mary Margaret's poor nerves. And now Mary Margaret dresses only in pink. Pink stretch pants and pink polyester blouses, pink hose, pink shoes. She puts on her long pink rayon nighties and pink chenille robes by four in the afternoon because she has to be careful of her heart. Then she goes into the living room and plays the piano until supper. The big color television is in the living room also. Fritz turns the TV volume louder and she strikes the piano keys harder, pounding out hymns and singing along in a cracked, dry voice until Fritz says, What's that? Did somebody bring in a cat? Then he shakes with a sort of laughter that is angry, bitter, taunting, not amused. A cat would have made me a better wife. Their arguments fill the house like an odor, clinging to the sofa and seeping between the bed sheets, lingering in Ellen's hair. Each night before she goes to bed, Mary Margaret calls Ellen into the bathroom to rub Bengay on her shoulders and to watch her take her pills so she won't forget and take the same ones twice. Biting her cheek, Ellen obeys. To refuse means James's cold back stretched like a wall down the middle of the bed. She's old. She's unwell. You couldn't do her that one favor? The bathroom is also pink. The shelves are lined with powders, oils, creams, perfumes. Some of the bottles are so old, Ellen wonders if they're valuable. Certainly they are beautiful. Many are in the shape of the Virgin, but there are also birds and buildings and flowers... And high up on the top shelf is an empty bottle shaped like a ballerina, dressed in a full-skirted pink gauze dress. Beside it stands a tiny upright piano, still filled with perfume, which Amy particularly loves. Would you ask her if I could hold it? She asked Ellen once. You have to ask her that yourself, Ellen told her, although they both knew that...